0: And welcome in, everyone, to another Tuesday night. Uh, My name is Connor Riley. This is Connor in coverage, your weekly recap of everything Georgia, what's going on, what's out there in the news. It's been a busy week in terms of what's going on out there in college football. Some all-American teams are trickling out, some all-SEC teams, courtesy of Phil Steele, came out. We'll be talking about that off the top of the show tonight. A lot of news on the college football playoff and what that is looking like uh, coming out today. We'll sort of give you an overview of what's happened, What's going to happen next and how it all sort of picks up and changes steam as things continue to progress there uh, to where it looks like we're going to get a 12 team playoff. I think the bigger question now is when that happens and not so much if it happens. I do think the powers that be want to see this get to 12. The question now becomes how do they clear these logistical hurdles to get to that as soon as possible. So we're on Facebook tonight. We're on YouTube. We're on Twitch. Hopefully be on Twitter uh, shortly as well as we continue got some new software we're figuring out here, so if anything's a little glitchy tonight, I'm going to blame that. Uh, We do a podcast version of this. You can get that wherever you get podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play. We appreciate you guys checking out on there. Facebook questions, comments, uh, go ahead and ask them. We'll get to them at the end of the show tonight, but without further ado, let's go into our sort of first subject here of the night, and that is going to be about a certain quarterback on the Georgia team. That would be JT Daniels. And if you didn't read it, uh, Mike Griffith just had a story post uh, a little bit a little while ago. Uh, Phil Steele has released his preseason All-American teams and his preseason All-SEC teams. And JT Daniels and the Georgia Bulldogs will well-represented on both of those. Uh, Daniels was named as the second team All-SEC quarterback, according to Phil Steele. Matt Corral coming in on the first team, Emery Jones coming in on the second team, and then Bryce Young coming in on the third team. So I figure why not take tonight, the start of tonight's show, and sort of walk through those four candidates, how Daniels stacks up to each of them, and how I think at the end of the season, Daniels can do what he needs to do to get to a place where he is the clear, no doubt about it, first team All-SEC quarterback. So we'll start off talking about Daniels. He's the name everyone here I think is most familiar with uh Started last year for Georgia in the final four games, 10.3 yards per attempt. That's the most of any returning Power Five quarterback in the country. Ten touchdowns, two interceptions, 67% completion percentage. Four and 0 record in 2020, though those four teams only Cincinnati. I think you could say is a real credible team, or at least at, at the very least a good team. Now, that Mississippi State defense actually wasn't all that bad, and Daniel's actually comparatively played better against them than some of the Mac Jones. Um, other elite quarterbacks out there so uh, he's done some impressive things I think the biggest thing with Daniels at this point is still just sample size and again in a four game season where COVID it was really weird it was really strange I think as you're seeing with the NBA right now it's hard to know exactly what we really learned from that COVID season and how it translates going forward There are going to be teams I think they're going to be a lot better than they were because they're it, just the difficulties of handling the pandemic Conversely, some of the teams that played really well last year might not be quite as good. And I think one thing to keep in mind with all this is you had a lot of schools bring back a lot of veteran experience thanks in part to the NCAA, allowing an extra year of eligibility. But with so many teams taking advantage of that, that usual – I'm trying to think of the right word here – that usual benefit or boost that you get from all those players coming back might be mitigated, comparatively speaking, to some years in the past. And Georgia's one of those teams to look out for given they do bring back a guy like Daniels, a guy like Jamari Sawyer, Adam Anderson, Samir White, James Cook in the backfield. So while, yes, some of these teams figure to take a leap ahead, you look at a school like Georgia that brings back Daniels, who, again, you know, the weirdness of the pandemic last year certainly contributed to Georgia getting off to the slow start that they did. I think the other thing to keep in mind with Daniels here, we don't have this on the screen, but He's now got a full season to work with Todd Munkin, a full offseason to work with Todd Munkin. Yes, they do, he did lose George Pickens at the start of spring practice, but there's still enough talent in that Georgia wide receiver room to make up for it. I think Jermaine Burton is going to be a star. He did not make Phil Steele's all-SEC team, but I guarantee you he probably will at the end of the season. Uh, Kyrus Jackson was named a second-teamer. Arete Gilbert was named fourth-team tight end uh zamir white got on there as a fourth team running back there's a ton of talent for jt daniels to disperse the ball around to, and he certainly got the playmakers to do it and even on the offensive line you had jamari sawyer on the first team who was also i believe a first team all american in steel's eyes Justin Schaefer was a second team guard Warren McClendon was a third teamer as well there so there's talent throughout this georgia offense and jt daniels is going to be the guy that makes it go for georgia really in this year but There are some other pretty good or at least pretty capable quarterbacks in the SEC, and again, I think part of the reason you see Daniels on the second team there is because it's a projection really based off him. Yes, he did show and play well in the final four games of the 2020 season, but that's still only a four-game sample size, whereas I think you look at a guy like Matt Corral who last season, similar numbers in some areas, and it was actually a little bit better in others, 10.2 yards per attempt, 29 touchdowns. Now the 14 interceptions are a little – too high is certainly for a Kirby smart offense. But again, he's working with a great offensive mind in Lane Kiffin, who knows how to get the most out of his offenses. completed 70% of his passes, five and five record in 2020, but that's a, not to say misleading. They actually finished the year playing really well, winning for the last five games. And the one loss came in a five point defeat to LSU. I think the thing with Corral is the thing you both, you can hold this against him or you can say that this is a real area of growth for him. Eleven of his fourteen interceptions last season came in two games in losses against LSU and Arkansas. So if you remove those from the equation, in the other twenty or the other eight games, I believe he had twenty-four touchdowns to three interceptions. So while yes, he can be a little erratic, if he becomes a more consistent passer in those games, I think he's got a sky high potential, especially playing in a Lane Kiffin offense that just knows how to get the most out of its weapons. They have a running back, Jerrion Ealy that I think is going to be a really good player. And Georgia fans saw firsthand, you know, not too many people thought all that highly of Elijah Moore when he was committed to Georgia. And then on national signing day in 2018 backs off that commitment. And he ends up at Ole Miss. He goes in the second round of the New York jets, whereas a wide receiver, the Georgia ended up taking over Elijah Moore, Tommy Bush. He is now transferred out of the program. So that Lane Kiffin and Ole Miss offense is going to be a force to be reckoned with. And you know, end of the season, I still don't know if Matt Corral is gonna be the guy ahead of JT Daniels, but I certainly understand it to in the in the preseason just because I think we know a little bit more about what Matt Corral is, whereas with JT Daniels, again, it is still a projection based off the four games that he had played in last season. So those are that Matt Corral, first team quarterback, JT Daniels, second team quarterback. I thought those two guys are far and away the top two most experienced or, or at the highest pedigree in terms of what they've already shown in college to merit first and second team selections. The next two guys are much more projection-based, even even more so than Daniels, because Daniels also does have that season uh, as a starter at USC back in way back in 2019. But the third team quarterback, and I thought this was pretty interesting, was Emery Jones of Florida. Last season, playing behind Kyle Trask, 6.9 yards per attempt, two touchdowns, one interception, 56% completion percentage. Did not start a single game for Florida in 2020, though he did appear in nine of them. Ran for 217 yards and two rushing touchdowns as well. I I think Emory Jones in Florida, there's not going to be an offense that is more different from one year than next. So Florida's I think pass heavy offense last season with guys like Kyle Trask distributing the ball to a first round pick in Kyle Pitts and a first round pick in Kadarius Toney. Florida does still have, I think, some pretty capable receivers, Jacob Coakland, Justin Shorter as well there. But I think this Florida offense is going to be very different. And if it's going to be tailored to emery jones's skill set you're gonna see him run the ball a lot more I mean, emery jones is much more nick fitzgerald than he is kyle trask and i did Dan Mullen, while not exactly the most popular player or person around the the georgia program uh, he still knows how to get the most out of his offense so i expect florida this year to be much more run heavy with emery jones sort of leading the way i'll be interested to see how he develops as a passer but With what we know about him as a runner, he's absolutely a capable threat there. With Florida probably being a more run-based offense this year, I think Jones is going to be a guy who at the very least is able to put up stats. Now the big question with him is, is he going to be able to throw the ball well enough in games against LSU, in games against Georgia, in a game against Alabama to keep the Gators close and potentially win those games? Because Kyle Trask was able to do that a season ago. He was able to make those throws. Granted, it helps when you have guys like Tony and Pitts back there catching passes, Trayvon Grimes as well. He's now no longer at Florida. So you have those guys there. This offense is going to look so different, and a lot of it is because of just the skill set that Emory Jones has. I will note that Anthony Richardson behind him is someone who did look impressive, and I use that in air quotes there, in, uh, in Florida is just shellacking in the Cotton Bowl against Oklahoma. So I do wonder a little bit. If Emory Jones doesn't get off to a great start, if he does struggle against Alabama, how quickly might Dan Mullen in Florida be ready to look at a guy like Anthony Richardson who does have some intriguing athletic skills along with a cannon arm, and he might ultimately end up being, I think, a better passer than Emory Jones. And then the fourth guy who I guarantee you, this guy will not be the fourth team All-SEC quarterback come the end of the season. That would be Alabama's Bryce Jones. Uh, Last season, similar to to Emory Jones, Bryce Jones was limited to backup duty. 7.1 7.1 yards per attempt a one touchdown, zero interceptions, 59% completion percentage only through 22 passes all season. So even compared to some of the other recent Alabama quarterbacks, you look at a guy like Tua, even before he became a starter, or even before he came into that uh, national championship game against Georgia, Tua had thrown a good number of passes. And so he was a little bit more well-known. That's not necessarily the case with Bryce Young. Now, What we will say about Bryce Young is probably in terms of potential, he has a higher ceiling than anyone on this list. And I actually include JT Daniels in that. He was the number one overall quarterback in the 2020 recruiting class, an absolute stud. I think he's a guy who it might take him a little while to get up to speed, but I think at the end of the season when Georgia and Alabama are playing in the NCC championship game, Bryce Young is going to be every bit as capable as I think everyone thinks he will be. They do have to replace some major weapons, obviously, on the offensive side of the ball. But I think they've still got enough talent there. They've got a great coaching staff, obviously, with Nick Saban, but then bringing in an NFL head coach and Bill O'Brien to be your offensive coordinator, another NFL coach in Doug Marone to be your offensive line coach. I think they're going to be able to figure it out. They're still going to be able to score a lot of points there in Alabama this year, and Bryce Young is going to be a big reason why. But having said all that, I still think if you, if you, you ask me right now to pick the guy who's going to be the best quarterback in the SEC come the end of the season, I think that's going to be JT Daniels. And the reason I say that is just because I think there's enough with this Georgia offense, there's enough talent there. And he's shown at least in the past enough promise to be able to get that offense to where it needs to be. You saw it in, in the peach bowl where again, it wasn't the most impressive game for JT in that peach bowl. There are think And he even admit a lot of throws that he had left out on the field, but I, what I keep coming back to is when Georgia needed him to make plays, he did. He had a couple of long passes in that game to George Pickens and Arian Smith, where if they're, frankly, a little bit better throws on his end, Georgia is scoring touchdowns on those plays. And maybe it's not the close game at the end of the game. But even you look back to that final drive where Georgia needed a field goal. Cincinnati was not going to let themselves get beat deep again after giving up two bombs earlier in the game. So what did Daniels do? He adjusted. He found Kenny McIntosh underneath on a couple of short check down passes, was able to do enough to get Georgia into scoring position and ultimately win them the game. Daniels wasn't perfect to end last season, but I think it's worth keeping in mind. He tore his ACL in the first game of the 2019 season and then didn't end up playing again in a competitive environment. Until November of 2020, so that's a huge layoff for a guy. That with quarterback play, as we've seen, just getting reps really helps. And I think you look at the last two quarterbacks on the national champions, Joe Burrow and Mac Jones. Those guys both got reps the pri- in the season, significant starting reps prior to their season, their final seasons in college. Obviously, Burrow got to start the entire. Uh, 2018 season for LSU and then Mac Jones got to take over for an injured to a tongue I think that really helped both those guys and then ultimately allowed them to take off in the manner that they did in their final seasons. And ultimately those guys passed more than anything else were the reason that those two schools were able to win national championships. Yes. Devontae Smith, Jamar Chase were great. Yes. They both had stellar offensive lines, but when it comes down to it, you still, I believe need a quarterback. Who is a difference maker, a guy who can win you the game. I don't know if a school like Georgia needs JT Daniels to be the best player in the country like LSU did. Or, you know, even Clemson like they did with Trevor Lawrence. I think he can be a Mac Jones type where there's enough talent surrounding him for, for, for Jones to still make some of the plays, but not have to be the absolute unquestioned best player. He wasn't for that Alabama team a season ago. I do think that's a, a situation similar to what JT is going to be in at Georgia this year. He's got talent around him. Now, there might not be someone this season who can do and replicate what Devontae Smith did last year. In fact, I don't know if we ever see a wide receiver play as well as Devontae Smith did again. But, again, Jermaine Burton, Darnell Washington, Arik Gilbert, there are so many names. And if I name all of them, I'm sure there are still going to be fans in the chat who are saying, you're forgetting player X, you're forgetting player Y. There's enough talent on this Georgia roster that I think JT Daniels, with the talent that he has, can elevate it and really make the Georgia offense one of the best, best teams in the country. I, which is, again, that's always sort of the goal. in Georgia, you could make an argument, has been the best team, one of the best teams in the country, but they haven't been the definitive best team. And if they are at the end of this season, I think JT Daniels is going to be a big reason why. So if Georgia can do that and get the most out of Daniels, I think it's going to be pretty clear and obvious come December. He's easily the quarterback in the SEC. And if he continues to make the improvements, improve slightly on accuracy on deep balls, and he learns to not take as many hits, get out of the pocket, Get throw the ball away. I think that's going to allow him to take the steps he needs to becoming not just the best quarterback in the SEC, but potentially the best quarterback in the country because Joe Burrow was that two seasons ago. Matt Jones may not have been the best quarterback in the country, but he wasn't that far from the top. And I think Georgia's going to need JT Daniels to be in that similar type ballpark if they're going to win a national title this year. So that's our first segment for the night. My name is Connor Riley. This is Connor in coverage. We do it every Tuesday night talking a ton of Georgia football. We just touched on JT Daniels a little bit. got some other things we're going to touch on tonight. College football playoff expansion is certainly coming at this point. I think now the question becomes, when is that? If you've got questions or comments, go ahead and post them. I've got a chance to look at them. Actually, we've got it now to where the Facebook and YouTube comments are are showing up at the same time on the same feed for me to look at. So big fan of that. It'll make interacting with you guys all the easier. So go ahead and get those questions in because we'll get them at the end of the night. But moving on to topic number two here, we're going to talk a little college football playoff expansion because I do think it's happening. I I don't think that this much would be made of it if it were not ultimately going to be the case. They are going to expand to 12 teams. That was the college football working group's proposal to the various bureaucracies that want to see this happen. There was another big step taken today where the college football board of managers essentially approved what the working group had said, I'm going to try and clean all this up uh, legally, or clean it up so it's not so mumbo-jumbo. Essentially, now that the initial proposal has been satisfactory and and conditions have been met, uh, university presidents, athletic directors are going to meet with coaches, players. Essentially, everyone is going to get together and sort of try and work out and iron out some of the more specific details that need to be done so. Because while the proposal is a nice first step, there are a number of key issues that I think still need to be worked out, and you're going to see this in the coming days, weeks, and ultimately months as this becomes more and more of a reality. So, we're going to pull up first here the sort of sticking points, or these are the things to sort of watch as the playoff discussion becomes more and more real and when it happens. I think the biggest thing to all of this is will ESPN be willing to change its contract, uh, its current television contract, because as it stands. That contract is set to run through the 2025-2026 season. And as long as that is in play, there's not going to be a rush to change the college football playoff. And if ESPN is content to say, hey, we're going to finish out this contract and then we're going to renegotiate a new one, that could very much be in play because as we get to what happens to the Bulls and their tie-ins, various bowl games have tie-ins through specific conferences. And if you go to a 12-team playoff, it's going to make those tie-ins all the more messy. I would also point out that the Bulls have already decided what years they are going to be college football playoff semifinals and college football playoff finals. So that's another sort of layer to this. The bowls, the contracts, television contract with ESPN, they're all sort of tied in together. And that's something that these schools are going to have to come together and decide on. And specifically with that television contract, that's going to be an ESPN decision because they could be content to just keep banking the money they have now, or they could be willing to rip it up, start it over, use sort of the exclusivity that they have to where you don't say have like a Fox come in and say, Hey, can we get one or two playoff games? So I think that's going to be something that's very much worth watching. And ultimately that to me is going to be the biggest hurdle of whether or not this happens sooner rather than later. Um, What will players say about extra games? Uh, So as it currently stands right now, if you make it to the college football playoff, you will play in 15, and you win your conference, obviously you'll play in 15 games, but now all right let's let's use georgia as a, an example in years past the 2018 georgia team they go tw- uh, 11-1 in the regular season lose the sec championship game now alabama they're 11-2 make the college football playoff as a five seed win that first round game so now they've played 14 games now you're in the quarterfinals let's say they won that game now you're in the semifinals, having already played 15 games so now you've got two more games to play in potentially a semifinal and national championship. And I hope I just didn't do the math wrong there off the top of my head. I'm pretty sure I didn't. So you're potentially looking at, for some schools, 17 games in a season if you're playing that first-round game. So it, it, it's, it, it is, that is, a, to me at least, a significant enough addition to warrant some questions from the players. Hey, what are you as schools going to do to protect us from these extra games, from the extra wear and tear? Because essentially that's an NFL regular season And it's not essentially if you play those 17 games, you are playing an NFL regular season and you see how beat up those guys are. And then essentially it'll all restart shortly thereafter. They don't get the sort of similar offseason that NFL players do, along with the fact that they still have to go to class and do the other regular parts of student life. So I do think that's something that'll be worth watching. Uh, These last two ones are certainly more regionalized. I don't think they're quite as pressing as what you see at the top there of these major sticking points do power five conferences want auto bursts this is most specifically geared towards the pac-12 because there's already been some discussion from larry scott the outgoing pac-12 commissioner stating if we're going to expand this we believe that the autonomous five which is essentially the same thing as the power five conferences want automatic bids into the playoff the working group proposal was that the six highest ranked conference champions an automatic burst into the college football playoff. That wording is very spe- specific for a reason, because you look just last season, Oregon, which won the Pac-12, would not have qualified for the playoffs. Cincinnati and Coastal Carolina both won the divisions, and both were ranked higher than the Oregon Ducks. And so what this really does is, let's say Clemson is playing Pitt in an ACC championship game. And let's say Clemson is somehow upset by Pitt. and Clemson had been undefeated going into that game. Well, now Pitt has your automatic berth. And if you're the ACC and you get an automatic berth, Pitt has just taken a college football playoff berth. And that doesn't exactly seem fair to a team that you know, went 7-7 seven and seven or 7-6 seven and six during the regular season and then won one game because they played in the crummy division and Clemson didn't have its best game that day. So I, I'll be interested to see the concessions made there. If you're an SEC team, the team that wins the SEC is always going to be one of the top-ranked teams in the country. So I don't think that the SEC and the Big Ten have that same sort of worry, whereas the Pac-12 in recent seasons, you can't point to that and seeing that conference just take a small step back. And then the last one, are quarterfinal games played on campus? I think there has been some push to see that happen. As, it, as the proposal was put forth, the quarterfinal games will be played on both sites. It's a little head-scratching because the first-round games, teams ranked 5 through 12 will be played on campus. And I think if you're one of those top four seeds, C's, one of those conference champions, you'd love to see – you'd love to get an extra home game out of that. And so really it's a slight disadvantage in the sense that you lose a little bit of revenue, you lose a bit of money, you lose an opportunity to showcase your campus if you're weirdly really one of the four best teams in the co- in, in the country that won their conference. So I think that's something to really look for and pay attention to as it comes. And then we'll touch on key dates here as well to know. So today CFP board of managers approved further discussions of college football playoff expansion and what that is going to look like. They are set to meet again back in September, September 28th. That is a key date to know there. And essentially from there, they'll have talked with student athletes, coaches, athletic directors, presidents, and sort of gotten a consensus on, okay, how many games should we be playing in? Is 17 potentially too many? Where do we play these games? How do we feel about some of the logistical hurdles in terms of contract agreements? How do we feel about those and getting those ripped up? The start of the 2023 season is a date to know because that is the earliest that executive director Bill Hancock has said that this playoff will possibly come into existence. But more importantly than that, the end of the 2025-26 season is when the current college football playoff contract is set to end. So Somewhere between the start of 2023 and the end of the 2025-26 season is when this playoff is going to start. If you are asking me to be honest with you, looking this far out, it's probably closer to 2025-2026. I would love to see it by the start of the 2023 season. I think college football pretty clearly has recognized the 14 playoff is not working in the manner in which they thought. It has sort of turned into an oligarchy of the – certain five six seven teams every year dominating for those sports those spots i believe 20 of the 28 college football playoff berths have gone to four teams that is not what they envisioned when this started and ultimately i think they want to open this up and allow more teams into the playoff and i think ultimately i personally believe that'll be better for the sport and so they do have some hurdles to clear they have some landmines to navigate through but ultimately it's one of the disconnects that really exists, I think, between college football as a whole, where you have this fan base, this rabid fan base that, I mean, you, you're you not going to be able to tell them, why can't we do this right now? Why can't we have it this season? I mean, last season, you look at BYU and Coastal Carolina, but a game on two days notice. So these contracts, I think, are going to be getting in the way, so to speak, of college football fans really seeing a product that they want on the field. And I can tell you, if it's the 2026 season, and that's the first year we get this expanded playoff, college football is going to be in a much worse place. They, In my opinion, the powers that be, they need to try and get this product and get this to a 12-team product as soon as they possibly can, just because I think from a whole, you're going to want to, see, fans are going to want to see this. And I think you look at sports like hockey, you look at sports like NASCAR, even baseball a little bit, those sports have become more and more regionalized. And I think that's to the detriment of their own sports. They've been unable to carry a sort of national audience. I think a 12 team playoff helps nationalize college football helps create a national interest in it because at the end of the day, yes, the sec has the best college football in the country. I don't think anyone with the sane mind can dispute that, but if it continues to be, the sec is dominating. Clemson is dominating one school in Ohio, Iowa state is dominating and Oklahoma is dominating. You're not getting fans from all over the country. And ultimately I think that hurts the product and the sec as this is sort of an SEC Georgia Gird show, stands to benefit from this. You're going to see three, possibly four, maybe even five SEC teams in it one year. And you know what? If at the end of the day, those teams are the ones advancing, I think that's okay. But you still need to give reason – you need to give fans in Oregon, fans in Southern California, a reason to care about SEC football because, hey, this is a team we might see come the end of the year. You need to give fans in Michigan, Wisconsin, Penn State, for example, a reason to care about SEC football year-round. Conversely, I think you need to give SEC fans a reason to care about, say, Southern Cal, Oregon, Texas, those type of schools to have in the background of their minds say, hey, we could see these guys in a playoff sooner rather than later, and you know, the group of five teams. I think if you give them an avenue and an outlet, you're going to see more and more fans attracted to watching those types of teams because you know there's a reality that you're going to see them at the end of the year. So ultimately, this stuff all trickles down. And I hope that the powers that be understand that and realize that, hey, we have to generate a national interest in college football because since the start of the college football playoff, I believe that has unequivocally gone down. It has become a much more regionalized sport. Now, in the South, in Atlanta, Georgia, where I'm located, I don't think it makes that big of a difference. But I can tell you from talking to friends around the country, college football maybe is losing its cachet a little bit with the national audience. And I think and I hope that a 12-team playoff sort of restarts that reignites that and at least turns it into instead of a, a product that is very different from the NFL, one that can mirror and compete with it and sort of capture fans in a national way. And ultimately I think a 12 team playoff gets there and you just hope that they're able to navigate the sort of red tape that comes with it and, and sort of figure it out from there. So that's our second subject for tonight. We're going to uh, put on ice a thing I was going to do on Tyke Smith. If you've got questions, ask him now. Uh, we'll go ahead and get to that. We've got about 28 minutes already, so we'll get to you guys' questions, thoughts. Uh, you want to talk about Georgia Clemson opener? You want to talk about guys in the All-American teams? Whatever you want to talk about. You want to talk about uh, the Supreme Court and NAL? I can do my best to explain that, but I can't imagine that'd be riveting television. So with that of mind, open it up, ask away. Uh, I did see uh, Phil Rogers asking who plays in the slot. Phil, I think to start the season, you're probably going to see Kiaris Jackson there. They're going to try and figure out who's the best X on this team. I think to start the season, you might see Marcus Rosemary, Jack Saint. You could see Arik Gilbert. And then I think at that Z position on the other side, you're going to see Jermaine Burton. But to start the year, I think Kiaris is that guy. Maybe Don Blaylock, as he gets healthy and as the season goes on, eats into some of the snaps there. Maybe Georgia is willing to get creative and flip-flop Kiaris and Jermaine because I think Kiaris is a little bit more of a physical blocker that might excel better on the outside. But to start the season game one at that slot position, I think you're going to see Kiaris Jackson um let's see um comments questions uh yeah moose themes uh the college football playoff will not happen this year or in the 2022 season the earliest it will happen is at the start of the 2023 season and based on some of the discussions and quotes coming out today from athletic directors it sounds like there are some hurdles to clear for that even to happen by that date um let's see Chris Smith, uh, yeah, Georgia will beat Vanderbilt this year. Um, Joe Wells asked, uh, DJ Uyungle, how will he deal with Georgia's defensive line and backers? Uh, That's going to be, I think, one of the key matchups to watch because while DJ Uyungle played really well last year for Notre Dame, the Georgia defense, I think, is easily the best defense that he has seen. And that front seven in particular is going to give Clemson a lot of problems. You look back to their Sugar Bowl loss against Ohio State, Trevor Lawrence didn't have a ton of time, and that really affected who a guy who you know Mike Griffith has said is maybe one of the best college quarterbacks in recent memory. And so Uyungle, again, against a fast defense, an aggressive defense, a great defensive line that I think is going to have a clear advantage over the Clemson offensive line, it's going to cause him some problems. Now, D.J. Uyungle is a massive human being, sort of like Ben Roethlisberger. program so getting him to the ground is not going to be an easy task. But if you can speed him up, if you can rush him, and make him a little bit uncomfortable, I think that's going to go a long way in determining the winner of this game. Because conversely, Clemson's going to be able to do the same thing to JT Daniels. And I think whichever quarterback is able to process things faster and make the right decision and make the right play faster and more often is going to be the the, the quarterback that ultimately, I think, ends up leading his team to victory. Uh, let's see. Uh, Robert Hanna asks, who do I think will be the starting secondary to start game one against Clemson, I will go with Darian Kendrick at one of the corner spots, Tyke Smith at the star. I will go uh, Chris Smith at safety. I will go Louis Seen at safety. And then I will go Jalen Kimber as the other cornerback. I think he might be cornerback one or, or coming out of spring, he was Georgia's top cornerback. You know, you have Amir Speed in there. You have Keely Ringo. It'll be interesting to see what Nyland Green and Kamari Lasseter do this fall as they get sort of up to speed as freshmen. But I think Jalen Kimber is a guy that's going to be really interesting to watch. He's still a really incredible athlete, has great speed, great leaping ability. The biggest thing with him and will always be the biggest thing. So he's sort of an inverse Jordan Davis. He's a guy who just has trouble keeping on weight. And so because of that, and this is something Kirby has mentioned, it's something that the nutrition staff has had to work with him on. If he's going to be physical out there and hang with those talented Clemson wide receivers, he's going to need to show that and be able to play at a, at, a, at a bigger weight. I think Keely Ringo is going to play. I think Amir Speed is going to play. But I'm excited to see what Jalen Kimber ends up looking like, and I think he's going to be a week one starting cornerback opposite um, Darian Kendrick because Darian Kendrick came to, came to Georgia to start. They brought him in to start. He has valuable experience. He's played in big-time games. And in a game against a Clemson team that obviously he knows well and has familiarity with, I think that's going to matter quite a lot. Um, Antonio Jones, what's the deal with Blaylock? Yeah, so he's obviously coming off ACL surgery. They're going to be cautious with him, and I think the depth that they have at the wide receiver position is part of the reason for that. Again, it's also it's the same ACL injury he tore a season ago. They didn't rush him back last season. Dom cleared all the checkpoints and did everything he could. It was a freak knee injury to have it happen to the same knee twice. It's just sort of unfortunate, but I think they're going to be a little slow with him. I don't expect much out of him from the Clemson game. Right now, wouldn't be surprised to me if he is cleared to play in that game, but I think he's someone who, if you're looking for contributions from him, those are going to come in the second half of the season or even really start of October, because I think George is going to use those games against UAB, South Carolina, Vanderbilt to sort of get a guy like him more reps, more live action speed reps, and maybe they will in August and in a Clemson game. Um, let's see. Um. Robert Jose asked, do you think at times they will load manage Jordan Davis and give other guys a chance with their lack of depth in position to get more snaps and experience? Actually, Robert, I'm going to go the other way. I think Georgia wants to find a way to keep Jordan Davis on the field more. Obviously, he's an incredible run defender and someone that they want to have on the field at all times. But Jordan Davis came back to be an impact player in the pass rushing game. He wants to get after the quarterback. He wants to show NFL teams that he can affect the, the, the passing game as much as he does in the rushing game. And obviously they have guys behind them. I think Georgia's depth on the defensive line is actually pretty good. The reality is you're not going to be able to replace Jordan Davis. He's a one of one player in college football. You have some other guys around him that can step up, but I think Georgia, they've done a great job of of managing and maintaining that defensive line. If you're a talented player, they're going to find ways to get you on the field. You saw that with Trayvon Walker as a freshman. You saw it last year with Jalen Carter as a freshman, but I think they want to look for a way for actually Jordan Davis to get on the field more. Now, do I expect that to happen a whole lot in games against Vanderbilt, Arkansas, uh, Charleston Southern, Georgia Tech? Probably not. But over the course of the season in those big games, I think you're going to see a lot of Jordan Davis. I think that's what they want him to do. Um, let's see. Uh, questions, comments. I'm scrolling around. Uh, Chad Williams, I think when it's all said and done, gunner he is referring, of course, to Gunnar Stockton will be the best quarterback out of all of them. Yeah, the quarterback position for Georgia, because I had seen there was a question about a backup quarterback earlier on. It's going to be a fascinating development over, I think, the next two seasons. Um, if, you know, JT Daniels' helmet comes off or he tweaks an ankle and it's getting looked at, I think as of right now, Stetson Bennett's going to be the first guy in the game just because of the experience that he has. And I know that might not please everybody, but... Stetson Bennett started, what, five SEC games last year, picked up wins at Arkansas uh, against Tennessee, against Auburn, played at Alabama. So that experience is something I think that's very valuable to him and to this Georgia team. What I think I'm really looking for when it comes to the backup quarterback battle this year is obviously Brock Vandergriff versus Carson Beck and how that development plays out. And so if Georgia gets up big in those games against UAB, South Carolina, Vanderbilt, those are the games where I'll be interested to see how much run Carson Beck and uh, Brock Vandergriff get because those are the games where I think you're going to learn a lot about the backup quarterback play you know, because I don't think Stetson Bennett is going to be throwing a whole lot of passes when Georgia is up 38-7, to 52-10 to in those types of games. And so that's where I think you're going to really learn a lot both about the backup quarterback this season but also how that quarterback battle is going to play out in the future going ahead um and that's not to say that Carson Beck or Brock Vandergriff can't win that uh can't outright win that backup job they both have a lot of talent I think you saw that on G-Day and it'll be interesting to see how those guys continue to develop uh let's get one more good question to get out of here the NBA draft lottery is on right now and I'd like to see uh I'd like to see how that transpires um Uh, Jerry Popham, yes, this is going to be a regular thing on Tuesday. Obviously, with the technology limits, we were just on YouTube for a while, but I think going forward, we're going to be on Facebook. Hopefully, we're going to be on Twitter every night, and obviously, you guys can get this as a podcast. And we'll have this pointed on the uh, uh, website early tomorrow morning. Uh, let's see one. Let's get one last good question. You guys have been good tonight so far. Um, actually, so I'll touch on this. I just scrolled past it because I'm a dummy. Um, Somebody, uh, Centerpoint Media asked, What about scheduling? Will rivals be impacted? That's another sort of way down the line thing to look at is, do, does the SEC say in particular, say, hey, you know what, let's do away with divisions and let's go to sort of a pod style? Because that is what has been pretty routinely suggested, where Georgia's pod, so to speak, would be Auburn, Florida, and South Carolina, where you're playing those three SEC teams every year. And then you sort of rotate and get to go around and see the rest of the the conference more often because the reality is i don't know how many of you guys know this georgia is going to go play clemson two more times before they go to texas a&m the first time and texas a&m joined the sec back at the start of the 2012 season georgia and clemson will have played four times at least in that span texas a&m will have played georgia exactly twice with one of those coming back in the 2019 season and one of those in the 2024 season and I'm someone who I, I – well, yes, I understand the rivalries. I'm passionate about them. I think I'd be willing to sacrifice, say, Georgia-Tennessee or Georgia-Kentucky to go see Georgia Ole Miss every, a little bit more often, to go see Georgia-Alabama, Georgia-Texas I think it's better for college football if the SEC sort of gets out of its own way a little bit here and breaks from some of the rivalry games or the games we've come to see and expect. I still think Georgia Tech is obviously going to be in the schedule of the year. They're scheduled to be on on Georgia's schedule until 2037, so that's not going away. I think Florida and and Auburn are obviously very important and protected rivalries. South Carolina makes a lot of sense from a geographical standpoint. And, And the reality is, look, as much as I don't like Tennessee, they were not a major rival growing up for a lot of Georgia fans. That did not sort of become a thing until obviously divisions were created. So that's going to be something that also potentially comes into play and focus here. You know, what happens with the Pac-12 North, Pac-12 South? Do teams more, do conferences sort of go the Big 12 route where they say, hey, at the end of the season, we're going to put our two best teams in the conference championship game. And obviously, I, I think a lot of SEC fans like the concept of divisions, but that might be something that you're willing to forego if it does bring you more big-time games. Because the reality is, you know, I don't think a, a lot of Georgia fans want to see Georgia Vanderbilt or, or Georgia Kentucky. You know, I think they want to go see... LSU more often, Texas A&M, Alabama. I think they want to see those teams more often, and it'll be interesting to see how it really shakes up the rest of this conference because I think uh, you look at a school like Tennessee, a school like Kentucky, Kentucky in particular, I think that school has benefited a lot from playing a lot of East teams, and it's been able to raise its profile. So, uh, again, Colby Curry, you're not wrong. Like that uh, northwest part of Georgia, like that Tennessee game means a lot. Uh, But to a lot of Georgia fans out there, look, Tennessee is one of the teams I like the least. But to a lot of fans out there, again, you know, that's something that's going to be discussed. And whether or not the SEC chooses to go away with it, I think that'll be interesting to see how it all plays out. So that'll be it for us tonight, guys. We've gone 40 minutes. You guys have been great. Great questions. We're going to be back every Tuesday, uh, except I think two Tuesdays from now. And I was off last Tuesday. That's that's the point. I was on vacation. We're going to be gearing up towards football season. we got SEC media days next month. Ton of recruiting coverage as well. Uh, Kojo Antwee is set side July 5th. Branson Robinson is set to decide later in July. We're going to keep you guys updated on all that. We're getting closer to college football season. You guys, I don't know if you realize, we are 10 more Saturdays from Georgia Clemson. It's getting close. It'll be right around the corner. As well as some of the other stuff we've got here at Dog Nation, you've got Before the Hedges tomorrow night with Jeff Tell. We're going to have a cover four on Thursday. Probably talking a ton of NAL, Supreme Court, mumbo-jumbo, hopefully not that much. College football playoff, recruiting, it'll be a ton of stuff. You obviously have Brandon Adams every Monday through Friday, and then Mike Griffith on the beat on Mondays. This is Connor in Coverage. We do this every Tuesday night. Thanks, everyone, for checking us out. Have a great rest of your week, and um, we'll be back here again next Tuesday. So have a great Tuesday night. Have a great week, everybody.